Welcome to the third edition of the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. My name's Craig McGregor and today we have a really exciting conversation with Ed Andrew. Ed's a really interesting guy. He owns his own business, The Human Consultancy. He's recently moved to The Hunter, was a lawyer in a previous life, has worked as a headhunter, and we really dive deep into the motivations and reasons that his career has taken such paths. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ed Andrew. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group, specialists in permanent recruitment, labour hire and HR consulting. Start a conversation with us today via our website, hrgroup.com.au, or at our socials, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Edward Andrew. I'm uh, a little bit nervous, to be honest, because Edward's a highly experienced podcaster, and this is my third podcast, so welcome, Edward. Uh, Thanks very much, Greg. I know the feeling. Um, (laughs) I, I remember doing my first few podcasts, uh, with people I'd never met before in, on, on different sides of the world. And um, I thought, oh, my God, if I stuff this up, it's going to be really embarrassing. Or you hear stories of people just cutting the corn thinking, you know, that's that just wasn't up to stand. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> Which is not – I'm sitting here in front of Craig, for those who are listening, and I'm not going to be walking out if the door. If you hear the door slam, you know what's happened. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me, I promise. Anyway, Excellent. thank you, Craig. Yeah, Great so, so we met in um, – in different recruitment, uh, I suppose, circumstances where uh, you were looking for work having moved here. And look, you were one of those candidates that I met and I went, wow, we don't get these guys in the Hunter that often. And I've uh, kept in contact with you since and uh, thought, what what a great person to have a conversation with about his career. So, Well, very, very happy to be here. I'm not sure. For those who are listening, I hope that's a compliment. <laughs> it is a compliment. <laughs> it's not a question that you've just got no skills and therefore we, <laughs> we don't see that very often. No, no, absolutely not. So so let's let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your, your career journey. And um, I know you studied law. Why, right. why the law um, path? Well, interesting. So, so here we are, and for those who may be listening um, uh, from outside the Hunter region, we are in uh, the wine country. Well, wines and mines, but let's just stick to wine for the time being. So uh, I was always a very passionate um, debater, or maybe you could call me argumentative when I was a kid. Um, and I always had a very strong sense of justice. And so in England, we have this split uh, system, so you can actually become qualified as a barrister on day one, or you can qualify as a solicitor, which is different to Australia. And I thought, I want to stand up in court, and I want to argue my case, and I want to fight for justice, and so I went to train to be a barrister. And when I was 18 or 19, I was also getting involved in the wine trade. I'm very interested in the wine trade. I, I did a course. I was living in France. Um, and so here I am 30 years later, having uh, back in the Hunter, uh, or living in the Hunter for the first time, back in the wine, around the wine industry, which is something I could have done um, a long time ago. So that's why I went to do law. And I left uh, being a barrister only after a couple of years because most of my friends were buying cars and their first apartments. And, you know, being a young barrister by law, we're not allowed to be paid for our first six months. And 25% of all of my billings were written off to bad debt. And, you know, it's actually, it's, it's glamorous, it's kudos. People think, you know, wow, you must be really smart. What a glamorous thing to be. It is when you're probably 40 years old. <laughs> Not yep. so glamorous when you're 23 and struggling to pay the bills. That's <laughs> interesting in itself. We all do jobs or we all aspire to things that may not be as uh, glamorous uh, in the long run as what they look like in the short run. So I, I like that comment. It's interesting. I, I was in a cir- similar circumstances uh, years ago in my career where doing travelling, uh, sitting in Qantas Club and 
the first two or three times, yeah, it's fantastic, but the drudge of it all just becomes common. Yeah, well, I think what I found is that I was very passionate and my sense of justice was very, very strong. And what I was seeing that, particularly in the criminal work I was doing, is that by the time, you know, someone had been doing this for 15 or 20 years, many of them had lost that passion um, for defending or prosecuting whatever they were doing. And therefore, you know, I I, I think their, their clients or their customers or defendants, whoever they were, weren't getting the results they could get. And I was very passionate about, well, you know, I could do a better job. I don't know if I could have done with hindsight, but I, I certainly could have been more passionate in my delivery uh, and given them a better chance. And so I, I saw that a lot. And what we call, what I call something called Friday justice as well, which is where, particularly in the lower courts in, in criminal law, you get a, a trial and it's Friday afternoon and um, you've been there all week and the police have been there all week and the witnesses are hanging around, the judge wants to go home, the jury wants to go home, all the lawyers want to go home. And sadly, you get a result which is not particularly just, just because people actually have had enough and they want it's to go lazy home. lazy justice. It's lazy justice. And I didn't like that. Yeah. Um, and yes, I could have stayed and tried to be more passionate about it, but I thought, you know what, for me in life, I've always strived to be number one in what I do. And I knew that I wasn't going to be number one in the sector I wanted. I didn't want to practice criminal law. I wanted to practice... Uh, dispute resolution or public international which between countries and, and uh, governments. I couldn't get into that and I thought, you know what, I'll go and do something else. But so I had no idea what to do with my so life. So h- how many years into your career was that? It was only two years. Two years. That's a pretty brave decision, pretty brave move. Well, I'd had a pretty good look at it. I, I was um, one of the UK's first ever judicial assistants, which is a role um, which is given to, I don't know who gets it now, but in those days they were looking for young barristers and we would sit on the bench with a trial judge so in this case it was serious fraud office which is not quite like the ICAC but it's it's the highest level of white collar fraud and you sit in the old bailey which is our oldest established court but we're actually sitting in a brand new building which is uh, in those days even then we it was was um we had technology and it was fully electronic but I sat there for three and a half months with this judge who became on to become a law lord um sitting next to him assisting on the bench with the top QCs of the, in the country, and it was you know a very high-profile, multi-billion-dollar fraud, and I, and you know so I I saw that and I thought well this is quite fun, but this isn't necessarily what I want to do with my I quite enjoyed sitting on the bench and being being a judge or helping the judge, but I'm not really <laughs> sure I want to sit on the other side of the table anymore. Yep. So it was a short period, but I, I did see quite a lot in that time. Well, what I was sort of inferring there is. A lot of people would have just stuck with it and done it because I've made this decision, I've paid for that degree, I've, I've, I've done this initial training, I'm going to stick with this. Whereas I think you've made so. the tough or brave decision to go, no, this isn't what I want to do. Well, I think, yes, and, and what I was witnessing as well is a lot of friends who weren't necessarily in the place they really wanted to be at in their career at the bar and they were going to stay on because they felt that this was what they'd trained for, what they paid for, and this was their life. And... Um, I watched it and I thought, you know what, this is um, what is happening is they're not getting the work they really want to do. They're better than that. But because they want to stay at the bar, and the bar's a very, very tight-knit circle, um, if, you, if you're not in with the right crowd or in the right, right chambers, you're just not going to get good work. And to me, unless I was in the best chambers getting the best quality of work, I just didn't see any point in staying there. And so, you know, that 
that was where I left, and I had absolutely no idea what to do. My dad was a banker, and I was convinced I never, ever, ever wanted to work in a bank, and <laughs> bizarrely, I did for a year <laughs> as, as a quasi-lawyer. But, um, and, and Craig will laugh at this, because, you know, right at the... What, just as I was leaving the bar, I, you know, I, look, I looked at every single job you can possibly imagine in the world. And a friend of mine was a headhunter, and he said, you know, come and you know, talk to us. And I thought, oh, Christ, seriously, recruitment, I'm a barrister. Who wants to work at recruitment? And I'm a barrister, you know. Look, you know I'm aware of wig and a gown, you know. And anyway, so I went, I went off to his office and met him, and I saw these just two long tables of people, like, in a, in a rabbit hutch. And I thought, there's just no way in a million years I could ever bring myself to do that, right? Um, anyway, nine months later, I still hadn't found anything I really wanted to do. And I saw an ad for a headhunter, um, and uh, I went to meet them, and they, they were in the city of London, and they were doing very, very high-quality work, placing people who were earning in those days, you know, I, th I think the highest was $8 million over three years. I mean, it's crazy money. Um, and I recognised that actually all the people in that particular company, it's a small business, were either ex-bankers or ex-lawyers, was a marine biologist, they were very... Um, very well educated, very interesting people who had all decided that actually we don't want to do that, but we're going to do this. And then what I realised is that um, the only thing that you miss from being a lawyer is is, uh, is you don't really have the um, the intellectual, the cerebral sort of um, a push that you would get as a lawyer or as a professional in headhunting because you're not. We're talking to people about being people, not about selling high-level products and services, very complex situations. What about so, the one of the issues that I dealt with was almost the, the master-servant. I, I moved out of a, a really important executive HR-type role in a large company where I, I thought my perception was I was an important person. Were you the business. master or the servant? <laughs> no, I was more a master then. So I had yeah. customers or suppliers that would um, serve me people in terms of recruitment or training or whatever they were bringing to then owning my own business and became, becoming a headhunter slash recruiter to going and, and, and being the servant. So did yeah, you well, struggle with that? Um, no, I don't think I did actually. Um, the because I think I was probably still telling people I was a barrister. <laughs> yeah. And I was working uh, in, in the investment banking and in, uh, in the legal industry, and of course, as I was a barrister talking to law firms, so, I had a, so the one thing it gave me, having had a professional qualification, was enormous credibility that actually I could talk their language because I was one of them, and that was very actually very important, particularly in that industry. And, and the other thing, which is quite funny... Well, on that point, I think that's really important, that I look at recruiters here in our local area, and there's not too many that have actually worked in a sector or... That they've come straight out of a university or they worked as recruiters and they're more salespeople, to actually go in yep. and talk the language of that sector or to understand the needs of that business, that's, that's not just a skill set, but that's knowledge that people bring to the profession, which well, I really, I think that's so important. Yeah, I, I think, um, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna go back to the first thing and I'm gonna answer that, is that the, on the master servant thing, hmm. for, for those who are out there who are in the professional services, um, the funny thing is, as lawyers have always considered themselves to be the master, because people come to us, we get paid a huge amount of money, and basically, it doesn't really matter what they say, they can take it or leave it, but that's our advice. What's happened in the last few years is the legal marketplace has been disrupted enormously by economics and technology, and actually what's happened is the reverse, which is lawyers need to understand 
as headhunters, as recruiters, that you are providing a service. And if you're providing a service, you are the servant, not the master. The master is the client, not the law firm. And this is what they've got wrong for the last 100 years, and they're beginning to realise rather painfully, actually, that when we provide a service, our master is our customer. We are not the master ourselves. But I think, the, to, to, to your last point, I think as headhunters, um, I mean, you know, we, we both operate in, in the headhunting world. We don't do volume. Um, I, know, I know you have a, a blue-collar practice as well. But you, what we're doing is we're really selling market intelligence. We're not telling anyone anything confidential because otherwise we wouldn't have a job. Um, and all you're doing is gathering information which is really available to everyone, but they haven't got the, the, the time or the resources to put that together and saying, well, actually, this is what's happening in the market. There's a lot of research, there's a report, there's a lot of market intelligence. That's what we're selling. And you can sell that if you know your sector. But if you're just selling a person, and you're, as you say, you're, you're a business development person, you're, you're basically going to win some business and you're going to sell a, a, a widget to them, that's got nothing to do with selling information. Yeah. That's just, that's just filling a hole. That is not actually helping a business grow by understanding the, the pressure points, the needs they have, and actually putting people in there. And in some cases saying, actually, you're never going to hire the person you want because, mm. they're A, they're not going to come and work for you because of the culture that you have and, and the issues that you have, which we can help you fix, or you're looking for skills which don't exist. Or, you know, you see job descriptions these days, um, Craig, and... You know, there will be everything on there from the CEO to the IT person to the marketer. To the, so, so, what, who are you looking for? Do you want a CEO? Do you want a COO? Do you want a CFO? Do you want a CMO? You can't, unless you're in startup world where we do everything ourselves, yep. you can't be paying a high powered uh, CEO expecting them to tick every single box on the list because they just don't exist. Yeah. And they shouldn't exist because no. you, can't, you can't possibly be an expert at everything. It's not possible. Yeah, and look, at that is something that I think the Hunter region is really struggling with, that the downturn in the mining industry has created an influx of people. So if you look at just basic supply and demand, there's a high level of supply, low demand of roles. So organisations, I suppose, have got the opportunity to ask for more now, and they're probably extending that beyond what they need to um, to get the individual that can do too much for them um, and not do exactly what's needed and not doing the best job of that component. So that's a really interesting point for us here in The Hunter. Yeah, well, I mean, this is um, an example of that and this is actually not at the CEO level, but, uh, you know, I saw an ad someone put up recently and they were asking for, and again, we'll talk about the wines. Um, You know, wine industry is, is about wine production, wine sales, marketing, you know, front of office, operations, all the rest of it. And these people were looking for someone to help them run their um, their cellar door, which is where they sell their wine, also help them sell their grow their membership lists. And this is how wine uh, wineries are making money now by having a subscription service, this guaranteed cash flow. And at the end of it, they said, "Yeah, anyone with a forklift uh, license <laughs> would be help, would be uh, it would would be beneficial." It's like, well. A forklift driver, no respect to forklift driver, disrespect to a forklift driver, but the chances are they're not going to be an expert at e-commerce marketing. Similarly, someone who has e-commerce marketing skills, yep. knows how to build a community, is probably not going to possess a forklift license. Yeah. So what is it you're looking for? Yep. Right? Because you know, that handyman is that you had on your winery thirty years ago doesn't who fit. can no doesn't fit anymore. Because that's not how we present and sell anymore. Yeah. Okay. And so that was in the UK? No, that was here in Hunter. You were in here? That was what, down the road somewhere. I was more talking about your, your oh. head hunting. So that was in oh, the UK? Sorry. 
You're all right. <laughs> yes. No. So, um, okay, let's get back on track. Thanks, yeah. Greg. Um, so, but I was thinking. So, you, talk, so, you talked about England. You've talked about headhunting. So, why are you so, sitting in the Hunter Valley now? Why oh, Australia? That's a good question. So, I came to Australia um, in October 2001. Um, my father had just passed away, and I didn't really like being in England anymore. I wanted to do something for myself. I was working in a business which I really didn't enjoy at all, but I, w- I went there specifically to learn the other side of the trade, which was volume and a place I didn't want to be, but I needed to see what it was. And I was sitting next to a, a lady who was Australian, and she just arrived. She was my researcher, and she said, you know, why don't you go to, why don't you go to Australia? No, one, no one's doing what you want to do in Australia. So... Um, I resigned, um, I did my business plan, I came to Sydney, I sort of stared at the Harbour Bridge for a couple of weeks, made a few phone calls, recognised that actually no one was doing what I was intending to do here. Before you go forward, you're not talking about recruitment because every recruiter in Sydney is pommy. They are, but <laughs> when I left see, when I left England um, in 2000, I was doing high-end executive search, which means retainers only, third, third, third. But what was happening, even then, 17 years ago, the market was changing. So what people were saying is, look, Ed, can you come down a rung on the ladder, right, and offer us the same service? Well, I said, I can do that, absolutely. And they said, okay, well, if we're going to come down a rung on the ladder, can you apply your same standards of research and headhunting, but can you charge us on a, on a win-only basis? And I said, yeah. oh, you know, as long as you give me a role, which I know I can, I, I'm, I'm okay on and it's exclusive, of course I can do that. So I then developed this hybrid research-driven headhunting strategy. So we get paid on success, but we apply all of our headhunting knowledge, all of our marketing intelligence to a client. And I took that to Australia and no one could do it because you either executive search, which means very high-end, research-driven, search fees, exclusive and retained, or you are at the search and selection end, which is um, you are not allowed to do any headhunting at all from clients because it's on part of your your um, your covenants on your on your um, uh, preferred supplier agreement. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to have no clients in Australia, and all my clients will be overseas. So I can poach from absolutely any organisation I like here, which they didn't like at all. So I can send them to, in the end, 36 different places around the world. So it's a very very specific model that no one could no one could replicate. No one has been able to replicate. because it's a research-driven hybrid headhunting where we knew that we would win 70% of the business because we basically mapped every person in Australia. So I came to Australia. I said that, and and this is just a little note for for anyone who's considering their own businesses. On the Friday, I'd bought a flat in the centre of London to service the American tourist market before I left as an investment. And on, I think, the Monday, 9-11 happened. And on the Tuesday, I had my first client meeting. So my flat was <laughs> didn't go particularly well because, of course, no one came to London. Uh, the American market, uh, tourism market went. And I had my first business meeting at 9 o'clock with one of the biggest law firms in the world. And the only thing we talked about is, is everyone's still alive, yeah. which amazingly they were. Um, and I went to Australia a week later and set up a business knowing one person in the country. I was lucky in the sense that I had enough time financially to, to build a business because it takes a long time um, and and that was 17 years ago so why am I in Hunter now I sold that business in 2010 I went back to the UK built a technology a SaaS recruitment business came did that for a couple of years came back to Australia did a lot of work in the startup consulting space because I built a tech platform uh, my wife's a fashion designer she wanted to have a business and I thought well I'm a businessman I can do that and so we went off to Bali for a year and a half which was lovely for us and the children to grow our um, fashion e-commerce business. 
and um, and to be closer to our factories for me to learn all about the world of manufacturing and logistics and, and supply chain. And uh, I think the, the world of apparel manufacturing, this is women's and girls, remember, um, and e-commerce are probably two of the most complex businesses you can ever put together. <laughs> so, you know, we're back in the Hunter because um, for my daughter's uh, health and it's quite interesting because as Craig knows, you know, I've met a few chairs of boards up here and I've been a chair myself. Um, is how progressive people are. And I think there's, there's a lot of energy in the area, in the Hunter, and also in, in the sort of broader Newcastle, Lake Macquarie area, for innovation, for technology, and there's a lot of generational change where um, very well organized, very successful family businesses are beginning to think about you know, succession planning. So I think um, you know, the interesting thing is, you can talk to progressive chairs, but are their boards progressive? Um, if you go and talk to a founder, you'll find that, in my experience, they're much more agile. I'll always say yes or no, and they know when they want to get something done. But if you've got a generational change coming along, you know, is an incoming CEO going to be someone who is going to hold the hands of the, uh, of the, you know, the rudder, the tiller, um, in a safe way so that the family owners actually can continue to extract their, their dividends and they can still have a degree of control? Um, and so there's no change whatsoever. In other words, they just want a functionary. Yeah, know, to do and that. I think that that's something that we, we might look, have to look at here in The Hunter is that word progressive that you mentioned, that there are some sectors that I think aren't progressive enough to look at someone like Edward. Mm. You know, they want that safety of someone with 10 years' experience in mining or someone with 10 years' experience in Industry X, when in reality, someone like you bringing a different thought process and an innovative thought process for how business will evolve into the future will be much more beneficial for them. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's the traditional path of a CEO. I mean, my dad was a banker, and when he, and he, uh, and he went from being a, 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 a private banker and an investment banker to being the CEO and chairman of the UK's biggest home builder. Now, he had no experience in the property sector whatsoever, but he was a banker, so basically it's, it's and, and he wasn't an accountant either, and he never went to university. But he worked for some of the biggest banks in, in the day. And so he had the experience of managing assets um, and managing other people's assets and advising them. And that's, he just basically transplanted those skills into a new industry. You haven't got to learn how to go and build a house. right? Um, you've got to understand people. You've got to understand managing assets. You need to understand the balance sheet and, and yep. P&L. And, and you need to be very good at organization and managing people. And those skills are eminently transferable. Um, yes, if you're in a, you know, I probably wouldn't go into a, a biotech field because I don't have a, you know, a chemical engineering degree, and therefore it would be harder for me to understand exactly what it is they're trying to achieve. But in pretty much most other businesses, you don't necessarily need industry experience as the CEO because you're running a business, you're running people, you're running assets. Yeah, and so you enjoying the hunter. Yeah, no, I love the hunter. I mean, it was the Lovedale long lunch last last two <laughs> days, so that's why I virtually lost my voice because I was helping out with a couple of the wineries. But yes, I mean, I pref you know, I came to Australia for the ocean, and and what we're forty five minutes from the ocean, so I would like to be closer. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to see it every single day if I could. Yeah. Um, but no, the hunter's good. The hunter's good. I'm enjoying it. Very good. Look. Tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and what the Edward Andrew right. podcast is. Um, 
So my podcast is called the Ed Andrew Podcast. You can find it on iTunes as well, but I won't steal Perfect. that. And SoundCloud. Um, and it's, it's entitled Careers, Law, People, and Life. So because I was a lawyer, there is an element to law in it, but I've had... Um, the whole purpose of my podcast is to inspire people to take action and to learn, to bring on emerging leaders and world leaders. I've had environmentalists. I've got nothing to do with law. I've had neuroscientists and psychologists, entrepreneurs, technologists, because... The audience is, is very broad and it's around the world. People who, many people who want to become entrepreneurs themselves in, in whatever capacity, or they think, okay, well, you know, I've always been interested in, in this particular field. It's a passion of mine. It's got nothing to do with my work, but how do I kind of explore that? And then when we look at, you know, why there's a legal angle, uh, and many of these, uh, many of the world's leaders in all sorts of different areas are former lawyers, whether they're politicians, whether they're business leaders. Then you've got, you know, Robin Sharma, who's a, a spiritual guru and a personal development coach, he's an ex-lawyer as well. Um, you've got all these amazing people who have these professional qualifications, and we've decided to go and do something else for a different reason. But you know, everything that we do in life is touched by law. When, we, when I talk to these amazing environmentalists, all for some strange reason have a background in the music industry beforehand. I, I don't know why. <laughs> but obviously they can only work within the realms of what a government's going to allow them to do around climate change and science and everything else. But there's a huge amount of knowledge and information that all of us can share. It doesn't matter what we do in our daily lives. And that's really what it's all about. It's about um, inspiring people to learn about something else and think, I can do this myself. I don't yeah. have to be you know, number one in, in the world to go and do this. I can go and read the book, listen to the podcast, and podcasting is such a fantastic way for people to learn, um, whether they're commuting, whether they're you know, sitting in bed at night, whatever they're doing, you can, you've always got 10, 20 minutes to yeah. listen to a podcast. It's amazing. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, that, for me, I do a lot of driving between customer visits and visiting family. Uh, it's not dead time anymore. No. I'm learning, I'm loving conversations or I'm learning about something new or something that I'm passionate about, like sport, for example. It's just a great medium. So, so yeah, everyone, jump on and listen to the Ed Andrews L podcast. Ed Andrew podcast. There's no way it's on the end. Don't worry. And, you know, I think the other thing is it, it's, it's not just to inspire others. We learn so much from podcasting being the host because we get these wonderful people to come and talk to us, share their life and their journey, and sometimes we think, wow, no, I, I need to go and do some research on that myself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, we have a little thing in the Career Conversations podcast where we have a time machine. Right. And we put you in the time machine and we run the clock back 20 to when you're 20 years old. God. And we say, Edward, what advice would you give yourself at 20 today if you could? Um, I would think the best advice I can give looking back on everything I've done in my life today is take time over your decisions and the big ones and share them. So I think the, probably the biggest lesson in my life, and maybe not so from 20, I mean, most people are very headstrong at 20, um, is go and find a mentor. Go and find someone who can, who's totally impartial, who's going to have your back, who's going to support you, but who's also going to challenge you when you're actually doing something which is a bit silly. Um, and it's going to help you understand the consequences of what you do in life, both in your relationships and at work and in your passions. You know, I think that my biggest regret since my father passed away when I was reasonably young, well, I was 30, but in, in a man's business career, that's very early doors, right? I'm now 49. Is to go and find someone who you... And it doesn't matter what age. I mean, the, the, the amazing thing is I've had guests on my podcast 
who are being mentored by people younger than them. And I think yeah. one, of the, one of the extraordinary things in life is to understand that we can learn from everybody. You know, at my age, if I learn something from a 20-year-old who I talk to a student, I'm very happy to do so. But that is also a different change of thinking. That I was about to say, uh, accepting that accepting at 20 is very different. I've met 20-year-olds who've experienced more and doing more in their life than someone who's 80. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's an interesting one too. We've had, this is our third podcast, we've had two, two characters from Startup World and both of those have said, find a good mentor. Yeah. So there's a, a common theme there. So, All right, so what's next? What's next for Edward? I wish I knew that. I've had a crystal ball. That's great. <laughs> it's not a bad space to be. I think, um, you know, my, my life, uh, I th- well, first of all, we've got to settle here. You know, my daughter hasn't been well, so we need to give her, uh, we need to give both our daughters some stability now. We've moved four continents in eight years, and, and that's just crazy. Um, is the fashion label still running? The fashion label's still there, but we yeah. sort of parked it for the time being. I think my okay. wife's definitely going to go back to that. She loves designing, um, but probably not on the scale that we were trying to do. I think she probably wants to do it on her own with yeah. as little help from me as possible, <laughs> as opposed to the other way around. <laughs> um, so she could really, you know, because when you're trying to build a big uh, fashion business, the creativity gets stifled because you've got to be quite, you, you know, she knows what she loves to do, and she's got a great audience for it and people who love her work. But when you try and scale that up, um, then sometimes the creativity and design can get compromised in terms of, you know, as the running e-commerce business, I'll say, well, look, we need to design this because we know this sells. And she'll go, well, I've sort of done that. I don't really like that anymore. And so you, you, it's best that she does her stuff. For myself, look, you know, uh, I am... Uh, casting a very broad net you know I love doing I've done so many different things in life what I to me what's very important is to be involved in some aspect of building a community whether that's putting that back into the community or um, or building it for someone else and the the thing which I'm I've just started doing and I, I think this will be this for me for the rest of my life uh, mind I've said that several times <laughs> before, is I've just finished writing 23 lectures for an online training program taking all of my knowledge as a, as a headhunter in recruitment around the world, as a, as a businessman, um, and also as a, as a human being. Now, um, Craig will know this, and I'll, I'll share this with, with the audience, is that when I was 42, um, I had prostate cancer. It's very young for a man, um, and you know, that, that, that changes the way that you think about life. And I, and I, I don't have it anymore. I, uh, they wouldn't do anything to me, so I had to go and work it out for myself. And I spent a lot of time reflecting and learning things like meditation and clearing it from my body. But it changes the way you think about life. Changes the changes way. Changes what's important. Changes what's important, but it changes. I think you know. I was always on that sort of quest to know there's something else out there, and that really makes you go for it because you don't really have a choice. You're either you're either going to get rid of this or it's going to hang around, and that's not a good place for anyone. And you really get to know yourself a little bit more. You get to also know what's important, what isn't important in life, and, and um, things you know that we expect at life, or that we perceive of other people and their behaviour, that we get upset about, and you learn that it's just not important. It's just you can't change it, you can't yeah. control it, so let go. So these these lectures, it's an online training program, is helps people who I've met so many people the last few years who are highly stressed or frustrated or anxious in their work. And that impacts their home life. Or you can have someone who's incredibly successful at work, but has a horrible home life. You know, they're divorced many times, or they're spending all their money, and they're not a very good person anymore. And they'll say, this is not me. This is not me. This is not what I want to be. 
but that's who they are. And the beautiful thing is that everybody, in my belief, has the power to change their behavior and their mindset up until the day they take their last breath. So I've worked with people all the way up to the age of 80 who are looking, who have regrets in life, who don't want to do that anymore. And I think it's a, you know, the, the, the privilege that you and I get, Craig, when we're, when we're working in the, in, the, in the people space, is we get to listen and observe and, and, and help people. And in fact, yeah. what we, I, I worked out and why I sold my business is I spend far more time giving people life advice and career advice than, I, than we did making money from actually putting people into businesses. Yeah, and you're right. And so it's a very natural space, and particularly since I've been forced to go and learn all of these other things for myself, and, and so that's what I do. So that training program is now. Um, it's under my uh, business, the human consultancy, and, and um, I also do mentoring. And I, I think that will now see me through the next stage of that part of my career um, because I can give back a huge amount into the world at large. And I think, you know, the big thing is going from one to one to one to many. One to many. It's a massive uh, trick to commercializing something like this. But more importantly, yes. <laughs> but more importantly, it's a massive trick to sharing what you're passionate about. Yeah. Like you can do this one on one in an interview space for a recruitment company. But to deliver this to the world, wow. Yeah. If you can do that, that's special. Well, you know, and, and, and to me, that's what, you know, I say I want to give back to the community. If, if I can do that and grow that, that to me is, is, is something I would love. You know, I've worked 16 hour days, seven days a week for a long time in many different businesses. I could do this all day, every day, just because I love doing it. Um, and if I can find something else to do a few days a week or, you know, for the next couple of years while I get back into this community, even better. But... I think that's that's really helping people is what drives me. Yeah, pure and simple. Well, and I'd say that to people all the time when we're doing career coaching, understanding the why, why you do what you do, and and for me, I help people as well. My vehicle is recruitment, yeah. career coaching, consultancy. You can help people in other vehicles, and so for you, you've discovered that vehicle, and now you want to go and help as many people as yeah. possible. So we wish you all the best in that endeavour. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, well, it takes um, it you know took. Uh, to, to all those listening as well, I know that they have there's this huge conversation in the world, right? I don't know how much longer we've got, Craig, no, looking no. at <laughs> is we have this huge conversation in the world about mission, passion, and purpose. And people say, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't know what my mission is, I don't know what my passion is. And everyone says, you should only do a job that you love. And then people get very confused by that. And they think, well, I, I'm not doing a job I love. How do I go and do a job? I don't even know what I love doing. Well, but even on that, I, I love that, that, that concept. We, we have the career transition stuff we do here, someone will be made redundant at 55. Yeah. And they'll come in and they'll go, I don't know what I want to do. And they're stressed, really stressed about that. And I'll say, you know what? Neither does the 30-year-old. <laughs> Neither does the 60-year-old. Don't stress about it. Discover it. And we go through some mechanisms yeah, to try yeah. and discover that. But the stress on top of that, that makes it harder to discover. Well, I think the hard thing is, is you know, both of us are in the same, we've been in the same game for a long time, is that we know that you know, if Craig, if you left this job and you sold your business and you went off to do, and, and then you said, I don't want to work in recruitment anymore, you would have lots of conversations with headhunters who'd say, Craig, I can't help you. Or yeah. I'd love to help you and I'm going to help you and you never hear from them again. Yep. It's because, sadly, in this day and age, most employers are looking for a checkbox. Yep. And if you don't fill that checkbox, you're not going to get a job. And what happens when you get to 50 or 55 or even actually in your late 40s, mid 40s now, because people are trying to hire younger and younger because they're saving money, they're trying to be progressive, but they haven't necessarily got the right skill sets. Um, so that they're, 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 they're 
the whitehead worker and these super connectors who are you know, very highly skilled in understanding and watching and observing aren't valued anymore. But what they have is, you know, you've got a lifetime of skills. Okay? Just because you did X job does not mean that you didn't learn how to communicate. You know, some people will be expert communicators. They, they may have been a technical marketer or the manager of a mine. That's got nothing to do with some of the, the inherent ability that they have, which is eminently trans, uh, transferable onto another role. But they haven't understood that actually, if you say, what do you do every day? What do you actually do five days a week? Can you write down, spend, spend this week and write down the things that you've, the tasks that you've performed. It's amazing what you discover that you're actually doing that is not really on your job description. But the, the other side that I find even more interesting is, like you mentioned, so if I did, if I had to sell this business tomorrow and start working somewhere else, there are people that I'd have conversations with that would employ me that the reality is they have no idea what I do because they see Craig McGregor at a chamber meeting or in another space where I'm, you know, networking with them and, and building relationships. It has nothing to do with the physical work that I do. They have no understanding or the concept of how effective I am at what I do, but they see this component of who I am, and they want that bit. Well, the thing is, it's incredible. You know, a C you can't put a lifetime's work on a CV because, you know, 80% of what we're doing is having conversations, not necessarily actually performing a task. It's having a conversation. It's growing out, which is gathering information. It's, it's the people that you network with. And I think the other thing which is really profound the businesses are only just beginning to get to grips with, um, and many of them, you know, are nowhere near it, is that when someone walks through your door as an employee, they walk through the doors of a human being. I mean, how many times have we heard in our careers people being said, leave your personal life at home, or this is what we pay for you, or that's not your job. And so what they do is they create these masks and layers of people who they are. They've got, in the end, they've got no idea who they are. They, they go home and they, 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 have a, they present an image to their family, they present an image to their boss, their co-workers, one group of friends who know this, another group of friends who know this, because they're encouraged to only bring a certain part of you to each conversation. It's absolute nonsense. If you think that someone who works nine to five on average um, has, if you sleep eight hours a night, you have something like 72 hours in a seven-day week, which is nearly twice as long as you'll spend in your office, awake, not at work. Mm. You think of all the skills that people are learning in the rest of their life they bring to you as an employee, yeah, as a absolutely. human being. Absolutely. You know? No, and, that, and that stuff is so important. Um, hiring someone based on a piece of paper, based on a job description piece of paper that you've created is the false way of doing it. We really need to understand who it is that you're recruiting and, and what it is that you need. And, yeah, we could talk about this forever, yeah. I'm guessing. So, <laughs> good stuff. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. Like I said, third guest, and I was quite inspired when I've heard a few of your podcasts and thankful that you've been able to join us here today. So thanks again for your time. My pleasure, Craig, and very best of luck. I know it's going to be a, a huge success. A big thank you to our guest today, Ed Andrew. What a great conversation. If you want to hear more from Ed, be sure to subscribe to his podcast, The Ed Andrew Podcast, available on iTunes. If you liked our Career Conversations podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on iTunes via SoundCloud or at our website, hrgroup.com.au slash 
podcast. And if you go to our website, please leave us a message. Uh, suggest a guest for us uh, for our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback.